Good evening. Since 1963, it has been the tradition of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church to invite leading theologians, thinkers, and activists to share their knowledge and stories with the Tulsa community. On behalf of our senior minister, the Reverend David Wiggs, and the Barton Clinton Gordy Committee, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the second of two evening lectures featuring the Reverend Scholar Cynthia Rigby. We are grateful for your presence, and we also appreciate the musical ministry of our chancel choir, led by Dr. Joel Pansiera. We hope that you will be inspired by their prelude. Dr. Rigby attended Brown University as an undergrad in religious studies and earned her PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary in Systematic Theology. She joined the faculty of the Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in 1995. Her most recent book is Holding Faith, a Practical Introduction to Christian Doctrine. The Barton-Clinton-Gordy series honors the legacy of Dr. L.S. Barton who was Boston Avenue's senior minister in the early 1900s. Fred Clinton, who helped establish Tulsa's first chartered hospital, and Ivy and Bona Gordy. Bona was a beloved Sunday school teacher here and member of our chancel choir for over 50 years. In a time when it seems easier to access relationships and consume content via the internet and social media. Dr. Rigby is reminding us that the mystical experience requires the presence of our bodies. In other words, the space that a living and breathing community creates is the playground where God can enact what he desires for us. So, here we are. Let us open our hearts and minds so that the words we hear become more than just words. Maybe a call to action, maybe a call to the imagination, and hopefully a call to joy. Welcome, Dr. Cynthia Rigby. Spirit of gentleness, spirit of restlessness, the spirit sustains us gently in our lives so that we can make the walk, succeed in the journey, cross over the Jordan, make it to the promised land. But the Spirit also sustains in us restlessness so that we will not be satisfied with the world as it is, but we'll keep on praying that prayer, thy kingdom come, stomp imperative to God, thy will be done. What can I do in this day, in this hour, in this moment to bring it, <laughs> to be a vehicle through which God works to accomplish what it is that God desires? Methodists do Holy Spirit better than Presbyterians. <laughs> um, in the music tonight, I want to uh, point out some, boy, you have a music director who really knows what he's doing. He's <laughs> amazing. Joel, you're amazing. 
But he, he has found ways of summarizing everything I'm trying to say much more poetically <laughs> and concisely. The second uh, song, Loving Spirit, we started out talking about standing in wonder before the God who is mysterious. The mystery is not that God is unknowable, but that we can say things that are true about the God who can never be exhausted by any of us, our words. Can we recapture wonder in our lives? Can we stand in wonder the way a child stands in wonder before, well, we used to take my kids to the Austin Zoo, and I get very frustrated because we drive all the way south, took us about an hour, and that's after getting all the kids ready and out of the house. And we'd walk in the gate and they'd say, look at those ants. And they'd get down and look at the ants for about 45 minutes and I'd be going, because <laughs> usually we got there with just enough time to see everything, that's our style. And my husband would say, Cindy, the point isn't to see everything. The point is to get caught up in the wonder. When do we get caught up in the wonder of who God is, the wonder of God's wondrous works? That's a good starting point for doing theology. Um, Madeline Langle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, one time uh, was talking to a girl in fifth grade and she asked the girl, have you ever read any of my books? And she said, I've read A Wrinkle in Time. And Madeline Engel, Langle, being very excited about that, looked at the girl and said, wow, you read A Wrinkle in Time? Did you understand it? And the little girl said, well, I didn't understand it, but I knew what it was about. <laughs> So our goal isn't to understand the Trinity, it's to know the so what of it. What is it about? It means that God is not at a distance from us, but near. God is not a relational, a monad, a, mar a monarch sitting at the, the keyboard watching us on a computer monitor, but has entered in with us as a community. And this idea of God being related in God's very being and God's relationship with us being consistent with who God is, is reflected in these lyrics on the flip side, the same song. Like a mother, you enfold me, hold my life within your own, feed me with your very body, form me of your flesh and bone. One of my friends, oops, who is the wonderful friend whose name I've forgotten? I almost know a lot of people's names, who gave me the, the article um, from Bishop Spong. Carl, where's Carl? I apologize, Carl, that I forgot Carl. Carl Bart, should be able to remember that. Well, he gave me this wonderful article where Bishop Spong said we have to think differently. And we have to think differently about God if we, if we think of God in a Trinitarian way, our great word perichoresis, dancing around. And this song does the trick. Look at how different these lyrics are theologically. Joel sneaks these things by. You. So just to let you know, this is Joel's fault, not mine. Because this is thinking differently. Like a mother, there's a mother imagery for God. You enfold me, hold my life within your own, feed me with your very body, form me of your flesh and bone. This is about the table. This is about the cross. This is about taking Christ's body and Christ's blood into our own bodies. And you know what else it's about? Nursing, breastfeeding, isn't it? It's about the, the feeling, uh, I'm gonna say this quick because we're good friends after four days, but when you nurse a child, I'm looking for witnesses here, women. 
you can actually do what you want to do, feed the person you love with your very own body. You know how you want to do that with your kids all the time? You can do it for this very short period of time. This is how God's love is for us, that God wants to feed us with God's very body. There's an image in medieval church piety called the pelican and her piety. Have you ever seen this? Yeah, it's a beautiful image. You can look it up in Europe. You see it all the time, but no one mentions it. We were on a tour of a church in Germany once, and someone on the tour asked the guide, what's that? And I looked up, and here's a a mommy pelican um, piercing her breast and bleeding, and the baby pelicans are eating the blood. This is what pelicans do to feed their children. And, uh, and the tour guide said, I really don't know. And of course, I jump in and say, let me explain this to you. It's a maternal imagery for God. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. But, but this is thinking differently, isn't it? And it's thinking perichoretically about sharing of life in the life of God, God's life with us, and our life with one another. That this is a little boundaryless, but that is even about feeding each other with our very life, blood. I mean, it's that close, it's that near, it's that problematic in some ways. I'm not even allowed to get this close to David. You know, I'm not even allowed to rest eyes on you for more than, you know, when you lecture, the rule is about this long, right? Even if we look too closely at each other for too long, it's overstep, and yet we have this God who's calling us to to intersect each other's lives. Like a father, you protect me, teach me the discerning eye, hoist me upon your shoulder, let me see the world from high. That brings back memories when my husband could pick up both of our kids. Now they pick him up. Um, And then this language of friend and lover, not my fault, not even Joel's fault this time. Uh, It's Song of Solomon. If you ever want to get teenagers interested in the Bible, (laughs) guaranteed results. Just read Song of Solomon. It's a metaphor for our relationship to God. Lovers, right? We're squeamish about that. I'm squeamish about that. But again, it's this, this level of intimacy where God wants to be so near to us and uh, invites us into that intimate relationship and calls us to be in that intimate, perichoretic dance with one another. Uh, these are beautiful analogies, right, uh, that we need to use if we're going to think differently, and maybe others as well, about who God is. Much closer than God doing something wonderful for us and us responding to who God is. As soon as you say, God has done so much for us, all God wants us to do is respond. You feel the distance in that? I'm going to give you a great gift, me being God. You can at least send me a thank you note. Thank you for doing that, God. Thank you for dying on this cross, oh God. Thank you for rising from the dead, oh God. And God says, I don't want a thank you letter. I did that so I could be with you in this life, with you in this, in this, in this world. The Holy Spirit is a way of naming how God sustains God's presence with us. Now, I mentioned that Wesleyans, Wesley and Methodists do the spirit better than Presbyterians. Presbyterians, by and large, are a little worried about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's hard to manage. Presbyterians like to keep things decent and in order, you know. Um, And that's good in some ways and bad in other ways. But um, I had a colleague once 
who taught preaching at the seminary. And, uh, and he, he told me one day, I might have messed up in class today. I said, what did you do now, Scott? And he said, I told the students they weren't allowed to bring the Holy Spirit into the room. And I said, what do you mean? concerned. And he said, well, I got so tired of students preaching, and I would correct them and and give them advice, and they would say, but the Holy Spirit told me to say that. (laughs) And what can you say to that as a teacher? (laughs) And Presbyterians kind of have one thing right about this. Um, Our faith isn't isn't, uh, determined by feelings, right? It's not contingent on feelings. Like, remember that Barry Manilow song, feelings, nothing more than... Our faith is more than feelings. Uh, And Methodists know that too. I think we all kind of know that. But you just have a higher comfort level with feelings. Um, My friend, my best friend is a Methodist minister. And gosh, she preaches barefoot. She doesn't care how people feel about it. She just says, it feels better to me, my feelings. I preach barefoot as a sign of humility. Presbyterians don't preach barefoot. It's (laughs) It's too real, you know what I'm saying? It's too real. I'm about as, as casual as we come as Presbyterians. Um, so um, why are Presbyterians so worried about the Holy Spirit? Because they don't want people to base their uh, faith on experiences and feelings. And the concern is that if someone feels doubt uh, and they're feelings-based, they might feel that they're not feel, they might feel that they're not uh, loved by God. Okay, all right. Well, Wesley was critical of that, and I think he was right. And he said, uh, feelings matter in our Christian faith. God wants us to know that God is sustaining us. God wants us to recognize the inventive ways that God is sustaining us. God wants us to know not only that God is with us, but God is for us, in solidarity with us in our lives from day to day. And, and so he wrote a lot of sermons about the Holy Spirit. Anyone ever read any of Wesley's sermons? Probably the pastors, yeah, one or two. But I love his sermons that, where he talks about the Holy Spirit and the human spirit because he was very cognizant that Calvin had kind of a point. People could possibly misidentify their own druthers, their own spirit, with the Holy Spirit, confuse themselves with God, project their own feelings uh, on God. And that was the concern of Reformed theologians. I could just say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to go punch David in the nose. How would you know that that was wrong? It depends on who I'm punching, right? <laughs> right? Um, so Wesley didn't think it was a free-for-all. Let's just base everything on how we feel about the Spirit telling us X, Y, and Z. So he wrote sermons on how to differentiate between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. I just want, you, want to read you a couple of great quotes from Wesley on this. Um, he Uh, said this, he said in his sermon called The Witness of the Spirit, may we not steer a middle course, keep a sufficient distance from that spirit of error and enthusiasm, enthusiasm, without denying the gift of God and giving up the great privilege of his children. Surely we may. So he thought Calvin erred so much on the side of being protected against idle enthusiasm that he missed out 
on the joy that comes with knowing the Spirit is at work sustaining us. And I think I was asked earlier today what Methodists contribute to Presbyterians, where Methodist theology is better than Presbyterian theology. And this is a better answer than the answer I gave at lunch, so we'll forget about that answer. Uh, if you weren't there and want to know what I said, ask me after the meeting. Um, but, so how do we differentiate, according to Wesley, between uh, the Holy Spirit and the human spirit? Sometimes it's hard. It's kind of like a, a Christmas carol where Marley appears to Scrooge, and Scrooge looks at him and says, how do I know you're not a blot of mustard on the sandwich I had for dinner? Now, how do you know I'm not, you're not a product of indigestion? You're really Marley, right? And I forget what Marley says, but what, um, what Wesley says is we look to Scripture as a way of uh, navigating, discerning what is from God and what is our own self-projection. What is the Holy Spirit from what is uh, our own spirit? And he says this, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures abound with marks whereby the one, the real testimony of the Spirit, be distinguished from the other, our spirit. What are these marks? Wesley says, loving, delighting, and rejoicing in God. Loving, delighting, and rejoicing in God. Me punching David, dumb example, but can't be of the Spirit because it doesn't reflect loving, delighting, and rejoicing in God. He also makes a big deal about the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. I don't think I can say all of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and there are two more. Generosity, faithfulness. Oh, together we know our Bibles. I'm going to know that verse the next time I come. You can give me a quiz. Um, another um, important role of the Spirit is that the Spirit, for both Calvin and Wesley, seals in our hearts the knowledge of God's benevolence, God's goodness. So I was talking uh, earlier today about how Calvin thought that Scripture serves as spectacles, eyeglasses, and when we put on our eyeglasses, when we put Scripture on, and we're looking, we can look through Scripture and see what God is up to in the world. Well, that only works if the Spirit is overseeing that process. Calvin was well aware that lots of people pick up a Bible and read it, and, don't, and the glasses are, don't work. The Holy Spirit facilitates faith. The Spirit makes faith possible. So Calvin's definition of faith is that faith is the firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Not through the inerrancy of Scripture, not through uh, getting doctrine correct, but through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the linchpin. That's for Calvin and Wesley's definition, just to do a little comparison. I'm getting a lot of comparison questions today, so I thought you might like this. Um, uh, Wesley says, see, I don't have Wesley's definition of, the, of faith memorized either, but I've got it written down. He says, the great end of receiving the Spirit is this, the great end of our receiving the Spirit. You might know that um, Methodists sometimes believe in two works of grace. Sometimes, sometimes not. Probably you don't. 
but maybe you do, I don't know, but there's a, a profound work of grace, a receiving of the Spirit following justification. Uh, but this is the, the benefit that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, that God may strengthen the testimony of our conscience, touching our simplicity and godly sincerity, and give us to discern in a fuller and stronger light than we do now the things which please him. So lots of similarity between uh, Calvin and Wesley, I think, on that. So what is... Uh, what is the distinctive role of the Spirit, and how can we understand that better when we think in a Trinitarian fashion? Traditionally, the Spirit is associated with sustaining us on the way, as I mentioned. But um, sometimes we don't think of the Holy Spirit in the Western world as having full status in the life of the triune God. We think the Father is God, fully God, the Son, many of us think, is fully God. Not everyone in this room thinks that. I've had some good conversations about this. But uh, the Council of Chalcedon said Jesus is fully human, fully divine, homo usios. Great word, right? Of the same stuff as the Father. But the Spirit, is the Spirit really totally God? Is the Spirit really a separate person? The answer officially is yes. Let me tell you what we believe. We believe the Holy Spirit is just as God as the God the Father and God the Son. God the Spirit is just as God. But just reflecting on this for a moment, do we really think that? Do we treat the Holy Spirit that way? Uh, Methodists maybe treat the Holy Spirit as 60% God, Presbyterians as 42% God, I don't know. But do we treat the Holy Spirit as 100% God? And so what if we don't, right? What's at stake? Why does it matter? These are interesting questions, I think. The Eastern Church, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Greek Orthodox Church won't take communion with us because they think that we do not give the Holy Spirit full status. They don't think we're Trinitarian, they think we're Binitarian. I know I've made this point a few thousand times in the last few days, but this has to do not only with how we understand the Trinity, but how we understand the church and our unity as the church, Eastern and Western. These are our brothers and sisters, we can't take communion with them over this. But what the Western church thinks, is that the Father, here's my triangle, ready? Father and the Son sent the Spirit. Father and the Son sent the Spirit. What the Eastern Church thinks is that the Father sent the Spirit through the Son. I don't have three hands, but the Father sent the Spirit through the Son. See the difference? Father and the Son sent the Spirit. That's what we Westerners have inherited. Father sent the Son, sent the Spirit through the Son. So that in the Eastern Church tradition, the idea is that the Son, that the Spirit enlivened the life of the Son, that when Jesus went out and taught, when he prayed, when he suffered in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, the Spirit was with him, sustaining him, filling him with knowledge, filling him with discernment, filling him with power to resurrect, to, to do miracles. Um, over here on the western side, we kind of think Jesus sent the Spirit down later after he got back to heaven. 
I'm exaggerating a little to make the point, but we, we like John better than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Does make sense? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. Remember the text yesterday morning in church? The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit's on site from the beginning, working in and through Jesus. In John, uh, Jesus goes back up to heaven and, and reassures the disciples that when he gets to heaven, he and the Father will send the Comforter to comfort them until he comes again. So this is the big debate. The Western Church says this is important, this Father and Son together sending the Spirit, because the, it serves as a way of emphasizing the unity of God, the oneness of God. The Spirit serves kind of as the glue between Father and Son. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, they join together, and the Spirit is the bond of love between them. That's from St. Augustine. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, the Spirit is the bond of love between them. What I want you to think about when I'm talking about this for just two more minutes is what do you think? In the back of your head, what do you think? Does that model work? Or does that compromise on the full status of the Holy Spirit as a person, as a full-fledged as full-fledged God. And what difference does it make to your life? Over here, if any, does it matter? You know, and why? Over here, the, um, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Church rejects the idea that the Father and the Son send the Spirit because they think it reduces the Spirit to being a byproduct of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And they think it would be easier for us to understand that the Spirit sustains us in this life if we let go of the idea that the Father and the Son send the Spirit and thought about the Father sending the Spirit through the Son with whom we're identified, we're there with Jesus, right? The Spirit is moving through us the way the Spirit moves through Jesus. Do we walk around in the world believing the Spirit is enlivening us, the Spirit sustaining us, the Spirit is a spirit of gentleness, calming us down, focusing us, spirit of restlessness, motivating us, making us impatient with injustice. That's what is at stake. Now, we've both inherited, we've all inherited from both sides of the debate, but naming the, sometimes going into a little bit of detail helps us think about what's at stake for us because of what our forebearers thought was a, 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 at stake. Sometimes we lose track of that. So, um, so how, do, how should we think of the Spirit moving ahead? How do we think differently about the Spirit? How do we uh, avoid the issues that Calvin was concerned with and even Wesley was concerned with? Unbridled <clears throat> enthusiasm. <laughs> Don't we want to be enthusiastic, for goodness sakes? I had a very close friend named David um, who uh, I went to seminary with. My husband and I were in seminary together. We have uh, been together a long time doing theology together. We met the first day of seminary and we studied with all our friends all the time. We were very close. And David um, was a disappointment to his family 
because they wanted him to make more money than you make when you uh, go into ministry. And he came from a very wealthy, old money family. And they, well, that's probably enough to say. But David um, really went for it, you know, really sacrificed uh, some of his relationships to follow his call. And um, I went to his ordination, and his family had finally uh, accepted that David was going on to ministry, but they took over this ordination. I mean, it was at a beautiful church, you know, gold leaf ceilings, maybe not, but I remember it this way, might as well have been. Uh, It was more like a wedding, tons of more flowers than you've ever seen at an ordination. And the program had to be just so, I mean, just so, you know, Presbyterian, not Baptist. Methodists are a good in-between. Um, So everything was planned out. Everyone had all their parts. But the Presbyterian Church has this rule that you have to have diversity on your ordination committee. Can you imagine? (laughs) Do you have that rule in the United Methodist Church? So you have to invite someone who's not Presbyterian, who maybe even like preaches over 22 minutes occasionally, (laughs) which is right there in Hezekiah chapter 9. It's one of the great sins to preach longer than 22 minutes. Um, Only time Presbyterians are inerrantists is when you go over the service. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, uh, this one particular man who was in charge of doing the charge. Do you have charges? So in the Presbyterian, sorry about this Presbyterian thing. I didn't think of this. It's pretty simple. At an ordination, the congregation is charged and the person being ordained is charged, but we only charge one person. We only have ordinations for one person at a time. We don't do what you do and have all these people running through like a graduation. (laughs) You can educate me. Um, We make, you know, it's one person. The congregation that they're going to be a pastor and usually ordains them. So it's very focused on the one person. Someone charges the congregation, someone charges the ordinand, it's called. So everything was setting up well, except the morning of the ordination, there were clouds in the sky, and this was very disconcerting. It wasn't part of the plan. (laughs) But, you know, people persevered. They wore raincoats. (laughs) They had their Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church umbrellas. Uh, It wasn't at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian, but anyway. And they came, and the, and the rain held up. God cooperated, as we figured God would, because God likes some people more than others. And um, <laughs> we're all out there, and we went inside, and it was just wonderful. It started beautiful uh, string quartet. Uh, everyone did their part. Everything was running right on schedule. And it started to rain, but it wasn't bad. Everyone was inside. It added to the ambiance, right? The pitter-patter of the rain. <laughs> Spirit of gentleness. Not too much, Holy Spirit, just enough. Until the black Baptist preacher got up to do the charge. He didn't have a manuscript. He wasn't reading. He wasn't contained. It was supposed to be four minutes. At uh, 17 minutes, people started getting nervous. Meanwhile, the rain was getting heavier and heavier. It was thunder, lightning. 
And the content of what the guy was saying wasn't bad, coming from a Baptist tradition. I wasn't that nervous. He was saying to David, your weakness is, your strength is, your strength is also your weakness. You're organized, everything's together. He said, that's also your weakness. You gotta leave more room in your ministry, in your life, for the spirit. And David was hearing this. In fact, he used to tell this story. He's listening and listening, and this guy's getting going. He's doing call and response, but no one's responding because <laughs> some people don't respond. Looking at their watches. And all of a sudden, boom, the thunderclap comes, the electricity goes off, the microphones go off, the lights go off, and the sprinkler system is activated. <laughs> and everyone got soaking wet. So I probably could have made the same point shorter. Shorter, but David always, David died in a car accident when he was 39. Um, but he always told that story whenever he talked about the Holy Spirit. And it changed him. It changed him. The Spirit is amazing in many ways, but one way is that it is surprising and perfectly reliable all at the same time. We can count on the Holy Spirit to be here. When we do our call to worship and invoke the presence of the Spirit, the Spirit is already here. We're asking for the special blessing of knowing the Spirit's presence, of feeling the Spirit's presence, but the Spirit also surprises us. Scripture, and you Methodists know this better, again, than Presbyterians, because you ordained women at least technically, sooner than we did. Technically, I mean, you didn't ordain a lot of women, as many as you should have earlier on. But because you believed in the Spirit, you're making sense, right? In, in the last days, uh, young women will, old men will dream dreams, and young women will, no, young women will dream dreams, and old men will have visions. You know that passage in Scripture? You believe that in the Methodist Church. The Spirit blows where it wills, chooses unexpected people does unexpected things. So how do we walk through our lives looking for what the Spirit is about, but thinking about the Spirit not as sort of this amorphous uh, something or another, but the way Wesley uh, said we should watch for the Spirit with discerning ears, discerning hearts, looking for the particular ways God speaks to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. What are the particular inventive ways that the Spirit sustains us? I think some of these ways are named in the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I won't stomp my foot again, we've covered that. Um, but give us this day our daily bread. One of the specific ways the Holy Spirit sustains us is by feeding us. Um, uh, Jose um, Luis. Jose Luis mentioned uh, that I think a lot about the importance of bodies. Um, well, I think the Spirit does too. <laughs> the Spirit uh, led Jesus to realize people were hungry in the feeding of the 5,000. The Spirit lifts up our hearts in communion so that we can uh, chew the bread and swallow the, the grape juice or the wine and participate in the body and blood of Christ. This daily bread, the Israelites, uh, remember manna? When I was a kid, I was mesmerized by manna. 
manna. The Israelites needed to be sustained. And they didn't have the, the, the word Trinity. They didn't have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, language. But they asked God for sustenance. And God, they went out. I mean, isn't that kind of an amazing story? They went out. Mrs. Brandenburger used to put this on the flannel graph. Anyone remember flannel graphs, right? My Sunday school teacher. And they always, uh, they'd stick them on like that and turn around. They'd always fall. And the kids would laugh. And the teacher, I remember that with great fondness. She'd had a had little baskets of manna, and she had like cotton things she'd stick on the flannel graph, and we'd all say, but what is manna? And she'd say, that doesn't matter. God provided it every day. And if we, if the Israelites tried to store it up, it would rot. Remember that part? There's a lesson there. We're to trust God every day that the Spirit will sustain us. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, not enough to survive the coronavirus, but I suggest everyone get a few canned goods because the Bible, you know, I mean, but we're, <laughs> I mean, uh, we trust that God will provide and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in the third article of the Apostles' Creed. You know what that means? You got article one, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Okay, check. Second, Jesus Christ. Covered that yesterday. Check. Just kidding. As if it's that simple. Third article of the creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. This is the pneumatological, the Holy Spirit section of the creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. They're linked. Our conviction is that the particular way the third person of the Trinity works is in the context of Christian community. We feed each other, we come together to this table, we make sure everyone is fed, that no one is left behind, that no one is left out, and the kingdom of God breaks through. You know what else happens at that table? We forgive each other. We do, we do. We believe that, we do. It's supposed to extend beyond the moment of the table. But in that moment, have you ever had to serve someone you were mad at? serve communion to someone you were angry with? Wesley one time refused to do it. Remember that story? Was it a woman who wouldn't marry him? Yeah, we all have our faults. Um, But it's even harder sometimes to be served. If you're mad at the pastor, not that you've ever gotten mad at the pastor, and the pastor is serving you, but this is not just a symbol. This is not just a symbol. This is not just a symbol of forgiveness. Something actually happens. When you extend bread to me and I uh, extend it to you, we're bonded together. We're dancing. We're dancing in the triune life. And it's not only about our spirituality, or rather, it's not our spirituality exempted from our bodies. It includes the chewing and the swallowing, right? It's kind of amazing. The nourishment, the strengthening. So how does the Spirit strengthen us? Through daily bread at that table in the context of the ecclesia, the church, the church. Forgiveness of sins, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic, what's that mean? Universal, not Roman Catholic, although the Roman Catholic Church will say they're the universal church. Um, (laughs) The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. I'm telling you, it bugs me to no end 
the forgiveness of sins is down in the third article of that creed. You know why? It just seems impossible for us in this world to forgive each other, almost impossible. It seems like if it were in the second part of the creed with Jesus, Jesus forgives us. In fact, when we confess our sins on Sunday morning, we don't confess to each other, we confess to God. Jewish people don't do it that way. You know who they confess to? The person they violated. Very interesting. If I harm you, a Jewish, per, a Jewish scholar say, why do you Christians go to the pastor? Why do you ask God for forgiveness? I mean, that can't hurt, but you need to go to the person and ask for forgiveness. We've got that built into the third article of the creed. We should still confess to God, but we need to go to one another and say, you know what? I messed up. Or you come to me and say, you know what? You messed up. <laughs> we don't do that, do we? No, no, we go over here and you say, you know what Sylvia sent to me the other night? Now, I, I know I shouldn't be talking to her, but you know, you were there and it really, I just need to get this off my chest. Uh, I like Sylvia and everything, but you know how she can be. And your job is to reassure me, not to say, you know, Cindy, go talk to her. Forgive, we need a lot of work on forgiveness. And, and you know, we put so much pressure on the, um, on the one who's been harmed to do the forgiving. Uh, when Bernie Madoff ripped off so many people, he, uh, Elie Wiesel, you know who Elie Wiesel is? He died last year, it was a real loss. Some reporters went to Elie Wiesel uh, because he was ripped off by Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff stole like a million dollars out of the retribution fund for Holocaust survivors. And um, the reporters came to Bernie Madoff, I mean, came to Elie Wiesel and said, do you forget Bernie Madoff? And uh, Elie Wiesel said, it is not for me to forgive. <laughs> there was a banner headline on the paper the next day. Elie Wiesel refuses to forgive Bernie Madoff. The man who writes about forgiveness won't forgive. So they went back to Wiesel and said, what punishment do you think Bernie Madoff should have? And Wiesel said, I think for a solid 10 years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we should project images on, this, on the wall of his cell in solitary confinement of the people he hurt, the people he robbed. Again, banner headline, this cruel punishment. Now, I think I understand Wiesel. I think Wiesel thought that was the best hope for Bernie Madoff to realize the humanity of the people he harmed so that he could come to repentance. Uh, this gets tricky, doesn't it? Do we believe it's possible to forgive? We do, but what is forgiveness? What is the work of the Spirit sustaining us in Christian community, helping us forgive each other, helping us not give up on forgiveness, helping us work on it? What happens when we just can't forgive? Is, is it in, uh, there's a book by Marilyn Robinson, anyone re read Ma Marilyn Robinson? Called Home, it follows Gilead, which won the Pulitzer Prize, which is a prodigal son story about a family, this is how I read it, they can't forgive, they really try, but sometimes forgiveness takes generations, it takes a village, to use an overused expression, it takes all of us 
to forgive. It is a communal dynamic. It's not just between the person who harmed me and me. We have to get nosy if we're dancing perichoretically with each other by the, by the power of the Spirit. You know, you know how the unforgiving servant was found out by the king? Remember the story Jesus told about forgiveness? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he told the parable of the king and the unforgiving servant. The king forgives the unforgiving servant. He goes out and grabs the other guy by the neck and says, pay back what you owe. And then the king finds out and throws him in jail. How does the king find out? Do you know? Fellow servants witnessed it and reported him. Do we report each other? No, it's not good etiquette. We don't look out for each other. We read, we're such an autonomous, individualistic society. We don't think it's our business. How does the Holy Spirit sustain us? Inventively, by working in community and helping us work out this communion together. That is the hope. That is the vision. How much time do I have? Am I over? Nope, we're good. I'm good? What time is it? 807. 8.07. Oh. <laughs> we're getting over. That's what happens when you don't have a manuscript. Talk too much. Forgiveness, think about forgiveness. If we could model forgiveness to the world, it could make a real difference, <laughs> you know? I mean, what if we could figure out how to, I mean, you're in the center of it with gay marriage and, and, uh, and we, our church divided, I don't know, but we can't give up. We have to look to the spirit to sustain us. And now, let me just finish up the Lord's Prayer. Deliverance from evil. This is a huge one these days. The Holy Spirit sustains us by helping us discern the principalities and powers that would keep us from living an abundant life. Uh, there's a theologian named William Stringfellow, who I highly recommend. He wrote about 100 years ago uh, and he said that the, the signs of the demonic in culture are falsehood, doublespeak, and refusing to, uh, secrecy. Secrecy, doublespeak, and falsehood. So he said, if a government, to pick a random, random example, or an institution, to pick a random example, says words like, truthiness, right, versus truth, or makes up truth. I mean, this, this is not necessarily a partisan uh, point. We, we've, we've given up on truth, almost, on being able to get from here to there with both political parties. How do we take a stand against the demonic and stand up for truth? Just a question. I think uh, many Christians have uh, given up on truth for any politician. It almost seems like you can't make it as a politician unless you lie. We can't give up on that. We're, we're the salt and the light. If the salt loses its saltiness, if the light's hidden under a bushel, what's gonna happen to the world? We have a responsibility to call that out. Uh, Doublespeak is Orwellian from 1984 is the best example if we say war is peace. And you say, war is peace. War is peace. Enough times. You start believing it. Well, war isn't peace, right? So falsehood, uh, the demonic, William Stringfellow argues, 
we can recognize by a, a, a non-commitment to truth, um, double speak, and secrecy. We can't tell you that. It's, it's secret. We can't tell you that. You have to trust us, trust us, trust us. That's always the answer. Be suspicious. Uh, and sometimes the, the trust us phrase is said this way. We need to be transparent. Which institutions say to people when they want to get information but not to give it. Maybe I'm on too much of a soapbox. But how do we lean on the Holy Spirit to sustain us in this political uh, world that we live in in the next couple of years with this next election, in the next few years as we fight about climate change and what we're going to do about global warming? I'm really getting too concrete now right at the end, right? But the Holy Spirit has something to do with that. That's our conviction. The Trinity has something to do with that. The forgiveness of sins, that third article of the creed. The church, as a witness to the power of God and the transforming work of God in this world, has something to do with this. By the way, the church isn't always only the, the people with the steeple. Remember that? The church is wherever the Holy Spirit is at work. We learn this from Latin American liberation theologians. Uh, in Peru, Gustavo Gutierrez in the 17, 1970s uh, pointed out that the, ch the church was an arm of the state. The Holy Spirit had left the building <laughs> but had gone into the uh, grassroots community, into base communities. I'm not saying that's happened to us, but we always have to keep an eye on the inside, the visible church, and the invisible church on the outside. Um, just let me make one more point. How does the Holy Spirit sustain us? I want to say something about the law, the law of God. Um, I didn't want to be misunderstood last night uh, as saying uh, we're saved by grace alone, so whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever. You don't have to follow the law. We don't have to make decisions. I don't think you thought that, that I was saying that. But how does the law fit exactly? The law... The law of God, for example, the Ten Commandments, are used by the Holy Spirit to help us imagine what it is that God desires. So Calvin was pretty good on this point. He said, by grace, we're free from the law to obey it. <laughs> it's a taller order, not a shorter order. We should just want to obey it. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I think that's the first one, the one we don't pay attention to, right? Calvin said when we know we're free from the law, we can in freedom obey the law, recognizing that it's sweeter than the honeycomb. The Holy Spirit reveals that to us. But think of it this way. This is kind of fun, way to end. Um, the, the, when, you, when I can't kill you, I have to learn to live with you. If I have to live with you, I'm going to start eventually caring about your life because it's going to make it better for me, you know, because I have to live with you anyway. If I can't have adultery, commit adultery, I'm going to have to invest in my primary relationships so that they flourish. If I remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, I'm going to be more rested and probably more creative. You're going to be able to be nurtured. So the point of the law isn't to keep rules. The point is to open us up to new possibilities, to imagine a place where there is no more killing, lying, coveting, adultery, 
uh, dishonoring of parents, where there is uh, Sabbath rest and so forth, right? The, the Spirit, just as the Spirit works through the spectacles of Scripture to help us see God, the Spirit works through the law from which we are free <laughs> to help us imagine what it is that God desires and step into that. So, um, last section, we gather in worship. We gather in worship every Sunday. The Holy Spirit gathers us at the foot of the cross, and we remember that we have been justified, justifying grace. Wesley speak, right? We're justified before the cross. The ground is level. We praise God. We confess our sins. We receive the assurance of pardon. We're ready to go. Then the Holy Spirit builds us up through the proclamation of the word, the, myst- the metaphysical hearing of the word, through the mystical eating of the bread, splashing of the water in baptism, right? Very particular elements that involve the body. We are built up. The Spirit edifies us. And then what does the Spirit do last? Says, you got to get out of here and go into the world and bring what you have seen here gathered together around the table. This forgiveness, this inclusion, this daily bread, this deliverance from evil, bring it out into the world and make it so. Our hands might be gripping to that table. By the end of the service, we should be saying, and not just because of Joel's and the choir's music, but because of all of it, right? I don't want to leave. Get out there to charge. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. We're called to go out in that world and bring the real reality of the kingdom we have witnessed out into that world and share it with the world. This isn't just for us. The church, by the power of the Spirit, is a parable and a promise of the kingdom of God. That's Karl Barth. Had to get him in here at the end. Um, I know this is the work that you're doing. I know you feel powered by the Spirit. Take heart, brothers and sisters. We're all in this together. I really appreciate uh, being here with you, learning from you, uh, having the honor of being your lecturer, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much.